Hello and welcome to IndieWire's Very Good Television Podcast. I'm Liz Shannon Miller at Lizlin on the Twitters. And I'm Ben T. Travers at Ben T. Travers on the Twitters. Whoa, you went with the T today. Yeah, it's, I feel a little off today. Feeling a little weird. Yeah, you're, you're, this is the T version of, of Ben. We're going to find out what version that means. It's been a long week, you guys. It a has. really long week. We are, in fact, recording this on the Friday before Memorial Day uh, because, in theory, at the very least, we're not going to come into the office on Memorial Day if we don't have to. Uh, and thus... Uh, you know, we're recording this early so that you at least have a podcast to listen to as you enjoy your bar- barbecues and summer summer activities. Yes, we're we're recording before we've seen this week's Game of Thrones, but we're not going to talk about it anyway, so it doesn't matter. You're not going to talk about it anyway. Are you still like three we episodes behind? We weren't going to talk about it. We're not going to. We weren't planning to talk about. No, Game we of weren't. Thrones. No, but are, are you still three episodes behind? I hope so. Hopefully more. <laughs> Is it over yet? No. Damn it. Well, someday. You realize that something horrible is going to happen to me, like, on episode nine, and you're going to have to cover for me. And you're going to have to catch up in one day. I can't wait to write that summary without having seen six episodes. Just be like, holy shit, you guys. Did you know that? that I can't even think of their names. I mean. The guy with the sword yeah, did the thing. The, with the, the, with... the lady with the dragons has dragons still. That's exciting. Does she, though? Does she? I don't know. Doesn't she? We, it's These are the mysteries of the ages. Mm. Another mystery for the ages is something that Ben brought up. This is Ben's idea for a podcast, so blame him uh, if you don't like it. But Ben brought up uh, this week that he, in reviewing Bloodline Season 2, which is a review that you can read on IndieWire.com right now, he was struck by something. Yes, I was struck by the fact that Bloodline is good. I mean, and you you gave season one, and this is the entire season one, correct? Or did you review it based on a few episodes? The initial review that ran was based only on three episodes that they gave us ahead of time, but I would stand by that grade for the entire season. If not, lower it. I mean, it was a B minus, correct? It was a B minus. And, but this season is not a B minus. A minus, baby. Borderline Whoa. A. Wow. So that's an entire grade leap. And it speaks to a phenomenon that I feel like a lot of people have noticed. In fact, I did a phone interview with Brian Michael Bendis, who's the comic book writer behind uh, Powers and, of course, Jessica Jones. And he was he observed just kind of independently that, you know, a lot of shows in season two somehow figure out what they did wrong in the first season. And and a lot of times a good show will become a great show in the space of those episodes. Yeah, and it's, it's an important distinction to be made, too, in that, I mean, a lot of shows kind of get better as they, you know, fall into their characters and they learn their rhythms and they know it, like they kind of find their focus a little bit. Um, you know, th- that definitely happens, especially in shows that aren't twist-based. And I guess that's what excited me about Bloodline. Bloodline is a show that very much relies on its twists. I mean, that, that first season, the big twist was given to you right off the bat, and that was supposed to hook you in for the entire, you know, 12 episodes of season one, which were far too many, far too long, and it didn't really pay off in the end the same way. Whereas season two, they cut it down to 10 episodes. It's just as twist-heavy. There's so much going on. And this may seem too simple, but the fact that we don't know what's coming works so strongly to this series' advantage that it really bumped it up to a whole other level. It's always had the cast. Like, the actors have always been tremendous in the show, but now they're actually working in the correct medium or the correct uh, construction of their medium to, to really 
push this thing to the next level. Now, is it all one time period, or do they flash back and forth between two different time periods? Because that's a staple of those producers. It, it's something they started with doing on damages and now do uh, for do elsewhere in on, like on Bloodline. Uh, they 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 definitely move around a little bit between timelines. I mean, they they don't. I wouldn't say they flash back and forth between two times there's just flashbacks and the primary reason for those flashbacks is to incorporate Ben Mendelsohn back into the season because Ben Mendelsohn was so freaking good in the first season that there's no way he could exist uh, or, or season two could exist without him and they've really done a, a fine job of, of using him because one they don't overuse him they don't overemphasize him this isn't a situation where suddenly he's alive I mean after watching him lay there in the water for so long in season one you pretty much had eliminated that already so the flashback works really well and and again like they kind of they don't overuse it and more importantly they don't overuse this great storytelling technique that they implement again to get Ben, ben Mendelsohn back in the conversation and also to put him directly in scenes with Kyle Chandler because their dynamic is just so, I mean, gripping. It's perfect. Those guys just go to war every time they're in a scene together, and it's perfect. Um, and, and how they do that is something that's very interesting in the sense of it's more about Chandler's character. It's more about John than it is about Danny. And that works really, really well for the show because it doesn't make you feel like it's some sort of trick. It doesn't make you feel like it's something they're, you know, putting out there for the wrong reasons. It doesn't, you, your first thought isn't immediately, oh, they're just trying to get Ben Mendelsohn in this more. It's that, oh my gosh, this is a really cool device. And it actually works towards the twists. Mm-hmm. He actually helps set up things that are coming where you don't know what he's talking about, but both characters in the scene do. And it just makes you kind of, you know, get up on the edge of your seat and just get excited. I have to confess, I maybe got a little lost there. But at the same time, uh, I feel like people who actually are really invested in Bloodline will know exactly what you're talking about and agree with you. People who know who John and Danny Rayburn are, yeah. People who've probably seen more than one episode would, would I hope, will make sense of that of that long monologue. But the point being is uh, th- this season really got better. Like, they really seem to... I don't want to say they figured it out. I want to say that they went back to basics in a certain way, but then they also kept the ambition from season one. They just utilized it in a different manner, like a more streamlined, functional, and appropriate manner. Like, it it works really, really well. And, I mean, to go back to what you were saying about the distinction between just a show just getting better, like a show just improving, and, you know, one show we bandied about when talking about this topic was The West Wing, which has a really great season one, but an arguably better season two. But that's not necessarily a reflection on the quality. Of the, that's not necessarily because any one particular thing happened differently. Except for, I think, one key difference between season one and season two of The West Wing is that during season one of The West Wing, Aaron Sorkin was also simultaneously writing Sports Night. So season two reflects what happens when Aaron Sorkin is only writing one show by himself at a time. Well, and they also just got rid of that really annoying character, which... Oh, I liked Mandy. Yeah, you're insane. She was terrible. Um, and that's that's an important distinguishment to make, too, because, I mean, what happens with Bloodline isn't the same as what happens with The West Wing. What happened with The West Wing se- seemed like development. It seemed like natural development. Bloodline seemed like a very conscious choice. The same, I'd make the same argument, even though a lot of people would disagree with me, over, you know, the show that we have to mention by uh, legal reasons every time we are on this podcast, The Leftovers. Most people would argue that they figured it out in season two, and I put that in quotes in case you can't see me right now. 
Um, but they didn't figure it out. That's just development. That's just where things are headed. They, they made a very conscious choice. They're very proud of the first season. The first season absolutely works the way it's supposed to work. Season two is the natural development after that. And a lot of shows you may feel like get better in season two. They may get better. They may actually be better. But there's a there's a difference between shows that kind of start off with a with some sort of handicap or an arm tied behind their back and ones that start off just, you know, just flailing, just trying to figure it out. And they're way, they're lost. I'm about to make a huge mistake and argue with you about the leftovers. Yeah, you're. You, this is you don't want to go down this road. No, I, mean, I don't even think our <laughs> listeners want you to go down this road. <laughs> no, but I want to say I feel like the stuff you're talking about with Bloodline, like making conscious choices. I think there's an element of that in Leftover Season 2. And I'm not arguing the quality of the Season 1 versus Season 2. I'm just saying that Season 2 clearly looked at Season 1. I was like, you know what people really responded to? The breakout character episodes. Let's do a little more of that. Uh, And I think also the conscious choice to really end Season 1 with where the book ends off and then make Season 2 completely its own independent story. I think that's a conscious choice as well. That was a choice in Season 1, though. They were done with that in Season 1, and then they knew where they had to go in Season 2. And, and again, like these, these conscious choices are important. Every, every good show is going to make conscious choices in, in the sense that they have to progress the show forward. But what irks me about people talking about the leftovers in this way is that they they're want to dismiss that first season, and there's no way the second season could exist without it. And maybe that's the, the way to distinguish these two arguments in that Bloodline Season 2 could exist. It could have started this way. They could have made Season 1 the way they're making Season 2, and, it, and nothing was stopping them. It was fine. There's no way that The Leftovers could have gotten to Season 2 without Season 1, and I'd argue the same for The West Wing. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and there, there are other examples I wanted to bring up. Like, I feel like bringing up The Wire feels interesting to me in this case because the choice that they make in Season 2, which is to pull the focus off the... Off, Pull, pull the primary focus off the off the cops for a bit and bring in this whole new plot line uh, f- feels like one of the great creative choices of television of the last 20 years I feel because it created this whole new paradigm for what a second se- what a second season of a TV show could be I don't think we'd have maybe even the anthology series we have now like would American Horror Story have like the same approach to had we not kind of explored earlier the idea that maybe when you Maybe the follow-up to a TV show. I mean, that's not really a great example. Well, I mean, you're definitely right on track with the anthology note. I mean, I don't think a lot of where we're at today could exist without The Wire, and, and that's you know a very TV critic, TV person thing to say. Um, but the, the implication that season one was faulty in some way or that season two was correcting course, that one is like, there's no way. Like, and that's not, I know that's not what you meant. But, uh, you know, just to get that out there so we don't get hate mail or people unsubscribe. Because we love The Wire, guys. We yeah. love The Wire. I mean, but I feel like, you know, just because I'm saying, just because we say season two is better doesn't mean we're saying season one is bad. Yes, but to directly reference that after I'm talking about Bloodline, in which I would say season one is not great. Right. And then to say season we're, two we're, is. We're talking about the phenomenon of just the the second season that takes the first season and makes it better. Even even then, I don't agree with you because then you're talking about the wire, and season two is not better than season one. Season one is nearly perfect. The what they did with season two, the idea that you know you could do that with a second season, that you could take a show there, is very exciting. That's progressive, but the season itself isn't better. Okay, I'm gonna we're gonna have a quick wire sidebar, and then we're gonna go. I'm gonna bring up a show that's much easier to discuss in this context. But I want to know your ranking of wire seasons. God, I. I it sounds I've like about one this is. A lot. 
You've I, thought about this a lot. Okay. But so it, you have I, an answer. I don't really have an answer. I've thought about it a lot, and I go back and forth, especially, you know, when you rewatch them, especially when you kind of catch ones at random, uh, you know, when, or when friends start to get into it and they start talking to you about it, then you're like, oh, man, I remember that. Um, I'd probably go like one, three, four, five, two. Wow. We have two at the bottom of your list. Yeah. Wow. Well, we have it, we have your answer. Um, now I'm going to talk about Parks and Recreation. Great. Yeah. And see, this is I think this is a great example of kind of more connected towards what Bloodline has done or, or that, that kind of first season. And I love the first season of Parks and Recreation. And honestly, what's interesting about Parks and Rec is you can talk about The Office in almost the same way, even though, like, and they've got that weird linkage together before they became very mm-hmm. separate shows later on. But I mean, The Office first season, Parks and Rec's first season, I really like them. I can I can appreciate them now. But when you're watching them at the time, you I didn't have that same feeling. Well, and I think there's uh, there, and I think actually The Office is another great example as well. Uh, it's a pretty a pretty similar pattern. And both of them had both shows had to make a very deliberate choice in terms of their approach to the show. With the office, that choice was, and I feel like this is, I'm cribbing from another, from somebody else's essay, and I feel really bad about it, uh, but this is not my original idea. It's something I read somewhere on the internet. I apologize for that. Uh, If I can remember who this person was, I will blast it out on Twitter. But it was a really great observation that the office had to basically convince, basically it had the, the American office, in order to work for an American audience, had to insert an element of hope because the British office was comfortable with the idea that work is a place where, you know, nothing good will ever happen and you basically go to die. And the American office couldn't, had had to have an aspirational element in order to work. And I don't think, I mean, I think it's it was framed in terms of like a cultural difference, but honestly, I think it comes down more to the fact that in order to last as many seasons as it did, it had to have an aspirational element. And also Michael Scott had to be a slightly better boss than David Brent. The fact that, spoilers for the, the UK office, if you haven't watched it yet, for God's sake, I have no pity for you. Um, I just, no, actually, no, I have a lot of pity for you because it's great. You should watch it. But anyways, David Brent gets fired at a key point at a pretty pretty at a pretty natural point in the show's run. It basically becomes incredibly obvious that yes, uh, David Brent is a terrible boss. David Brent should be fired. You get to the you went with the with the American office, like Michael Scott can be a not great boss, but he can't be a terrible boss. Like he has to be it has to be vaguely plausible that he would stay employed for years for years and years uh, by this company. Yeah, absolutely. And I, the longevity of it, I think, is the real, you know, gist of, of the need for that change, because especially once they, you know, saw the potential in it, got the ratings, realized what was going forward, I mean, or realized what was possible, I should say, you know, going forward, they really, they had to make that change. And honestly, it, I think it worked really, really well. I mean, and you can you can see it. You can phys- It's one of those few changes that you can physically see when you're talking about something emotional, because his hair changes. He's not bald. He doesn't have those weird plugs in the front. Oh, anymore. he's like actually got smokes. like a nice kind of comb over thing going. And you're like, oh, actually, that's more appealing. I can, you know, I can get behind this guy a little bit. You know, I, you know, I've definitely, of course, noticed that in the season in season one, he has hair plugs versus season two, and he just has hair. Um, but I never made that. I never made it as an. I never made that as an aesthetic connection to the show's improved appeal. That's incredible. Yeah, and it's it's a. Per- I think it's a perfect kind of you know, 
comparison piece for the British show because, again, they don't really care about that then. They're much more invested in the characters, and the appearance of that boss looking the way he did in that show fit so well for, for what they were trying to do, whereas once the you know motivations changed a little bit in season two for The Office, uh, the American version, that's why you know they kind of had to make him look a little more presentable. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I completely agree, and I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts were on the parks and recreation side of things because it's not quite as clear of, of, a, of a transition for me. It just became, they just slowly shifted her away from being someone who got confused, like put down a little bit to someone who really was a great community leader. I'm glad you asked uh, about that because I actually just uh, reread, uh, like so Adam, Alan Steppenwall had like, did the, like an email interview with Mike Schur about, uh, see, about, the, about the show in general. And it was a very, it's, it, it seems, you might, it's a very deliberate choice they made to reapproach the character. And the first, t- the first thing I ever heard about this, this decision to kind of just change the way Parks and Recreation approached the character of Leslie Nope was that they started, the, the, I think the line was like, she's a superhero. And, you know, as soon as they kind of locked into that idea of just like her being like a, just like a, you know, a, real, a flawed but incredibly passionate and motivated person who is doing good work as opposed to someone who's kind of bumbling. That was really interesting. But actually in this Steppenwall thing that I read, the Mike Schur also mentioned something really interesting was that they didn't really change Leslie. What they did was they changed how people reacted to her. Which is something you don't think about enough. I, I don't think about enough uh, when I when I approach television, like the fact that so much of the perception of a character has to do with the way people look at them or the way people react to them. But it is a huge thing. Like, and if you look at season one of, versus season two of Parks and Recreation, you'll notice like people are very be- be- like, especially like Anne. Like, think about the relationship between Anne and Leslie in season one, where Anne Anne is like, this person is really intense and weird, but I kind of like her, and she seems interesting, and so I'll just go along with her weirdness. To season two, when they basically become best friends, and they love each other, and it's honestly one of the best friendships on television. Yeah, I think that's a great example, and I think um, Aziz Ansari's character of Tom is a great example, too, because you remember in season one, he's very dismissive of her. Like, he just treats her as kind of the boss, the schmo that he can pull one over on, he can go do his own thing, and he always wanted to do his own thing. That stayed rooted in his character, but her her reaction to him was better after he reacted to her. Like, he would respond to her more efficiently later on in the, in the later seasons and that was that was nice to see oh god remember remember the episode where like her credit card gets flagged and she has to go over all of her charges yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it's like it's like she she had bought it bought a subscription she bought a tuition to the harry potter school of, school of wizardry yep. tom was not impressed by these purchases but uh but he was still impressed by her Yes, and that's and that's good. I mean, I think like they managed to find a real nice balance where she became a likable character. At the she she was a likable character the whole time, uh, and really true to herself the whole time. But at the same time, also got to change and grow. Um, and it really does start with that big season two switchover. Yeah. So, what are other shows that kind of fall into this paradigm you're talking about? 
Honestly, the, like the I was racking my brain kind of to get really good examples of it, and I think the the best example might be a non-example because I really like The Office as one of them. I really like Parks and Rec as one of them. Obviously, Bloodline fits into it for me, though. Be warned, folks. Apparently, there is some strongly mixed critical reaction out there for this. Um, but I, I'd say that the the most telling example is that a lot of shows just aren't getting season two anymore. I mean, if you think about it, if it's something doesn't work. They're going to cancel it now. They well, don't really let it keep going as much as they used to or let it have that room to breathe and develop and find uh, a new path. I mean, what are the other examples of this that you've seen? I mean, honestly, I, I don't. I didn't do a whole lot of digging that I could find examples like this. I don't think there – I think this is a fairly rare thing that's out there that you can actually – have a season one that that doesn't work that well and then really elevate it in season two to a whole other platform like to a whole other level um but i, I mean i'm sure you've got something like i'm sure that you've thought you've, you've got some of the, something knocking around in your brain well there are two things that come to mind and both of them are of course classics of 90s television uh there's something about buffy the vampire slayer season one had a lot of strengths to it uh but it was definitely kind of nascent. It was definitely still figuring out what the hell kind of show it was. Tonally, it was all over the place. And there are some episodes that are just not that great. Season two, however, really takes off and really finds its voice. And I think it, the big choice that it makes is a heavier emphasis on the soap opera element and really building a couple of key relationships that end up really driving the show forward and it's also got some of the best twists in television history in that first in that second season it's incredible um see again that's really interesting because again i mean i feel like most of these twist-based shows are the opposite like they work really well in the first season because they front load them and they have them and they work and then they kind of run out or they start you know crisscrossing too many times and they implicate too many characters and it just becomes a big mishmash so that's I mean that's pretty exciting yeah I mean the thing the big thing with season with Buffy is that Buffy was always built on metaphor like you know high school is hell is basically the premise of that show um to some degree and at least at the beginning and the metaphors were pretty clunky at times in season one uh and season two really figured out a way to nail it on the head and it's oh god it's so good it's so good season two is so good um the other thing that's worth mentioning is i wonder what you think about the x-files in terms of this argument because i am a big fan of season one of the x-files just because which of course we are legally required to mention in this podcast got them both in folks we got them both in check it off yep um but season one, I, I have I, I find really charming, but it's also definitely kind of awkward and weird in a lot of respects. There's again a lot of some, many episodes that are not great, um, and a lot of stuff they're still kind of figuring out. But season two takes on real new momentum, and it's the thing about it. And this is what's interesting: is if Jillian Anderson hadn't gotten pregnant at the end, uh, you know, somewhere in between season one and season two, and thus had to not only stop running around in, in, in the field on, on camera for several episodes at the beginning of season two, but also had to take a little break uh, at a certain point. If that hadn't been the case, I'm wonder, I, I, I will always wonder, like, what would have happened and would it have been as good? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, could outside of, outside of, Jillian Anderson, I guess, and like her her absence or her you know her 
pregnancy causing her an absence. I mean, is there something similar to kind of with Leslie Nope, kind of with Michael Scott, like a character-based thing that you can point to as a, as a shift from season one to two? I mean, I just from from my from my love of the X Files, I'm probably a little blinded. I I've most recently, you know, just kind of done the binge thing where I just cross over from one to two without a whole lot of you know recognition from one to the other separation. Right. That is, and I I remember them. I remember it getting better as I kept going, but it felt more like a development, I guess, more like a a a, a, a traditional like a traditional right. development. Well, I feel like I mean the, the real key is that it's a plot thing. It's a like the, the X Files has always had a lot of was always a very plot driven show to some respect, um, and by throwing in the abduction arc in, in season two. That it, it's a fundamentally huge part of the show. Like, it sets up so much of the mythology going forward, some of which even still makes sense. Some of the mythology in the X-Files remaining from the abduction arc was not brutally retconned by something that happened later on. It's really wonderful. Um, you can't say that about a lot of the X-Files, to be honest. Uh, but it is it is a really great thing, but it's also, like, it was clearly inspired by the fact that they had to cut back on Julian Anderson dramatically for the first half of the season. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think what's interesting to me about this conversation, too, is that, especially in today's day and age where there's so much to watch and everybody's telling you a different great thing that you have to watch, part of me felt kind of guilty about almost backtracking a bit on a show where it's like, yeah, you know, I mean, I didn't, I told you to skip season one, basically, or not to worry about it or, or you know, put it at a low priority. And now season two comes up and it's like, oh, now it's a huge priority. So there's like this thing that's like existing out there where like you really just can never write something off. If it's on the air, it's almost like you have to keep checking in to see if it's if it's going to get better. Or, you know, if something like this happens and people didn't watch season one, are they going to go back and watch 13 hours of television to get to season? Is it worth that kind of? I mean, it's is it worth becoming a big commitment? I mean, is Bloodline is a Bloodline season two something you can just jump into? No. Okay, so you I have mean, you should watch season one. If you get one of those summary things that's out there, like you know, <laughs> building like just a quick like a five overview, minute supercut, you you could probably put it together. Sure, but it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be okay. Good and to I, know. And I feel like that's the case with a lot of. I mean, I feel like that's the case with with Parks and with The Office too. Like you kind of need those early seasons. Parks is something though. I've I've legitimately te- field tested this. I've had friends who were interested in Parks and I'd said, "Try watching it without try starting with season 2." And they had no trouble whatsoever getting into the show. Like I feel like see, I've, Parks and Recreation, Recreation is frankly the only show I will ever say this about. Like I mean, there's probably other examples now and will and will be in the future, but to the best of my knowledge, it's the it's it's the only show I dearly love where I think you can skip season one. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a season one defender, but I can definitely see where you're coming from. And I mean, with comedies, you'd want to believe that it's easier to kind of jump right in anyway because there's going to be instantaneous reward for once you dig into it. Um, and with you know, if we're gonna compare the Bloodline to another drama like this, and and again, most people are the opposite on of of me on this page in the critical realm. You know, the, the leftovers would be the case where. You know, they'd want to tell you that season one you could skip and then you could get into season two or at least that season two is significantly better than season one. So that's the one you need to focus on. But at the same time, I don't think you can do it. I think you got to watch season one to get to season two. I think you got to watch season one of Bloodline to get to season two. 
And now it's becoming a question of not only is the television show good enough by itself, but is it good enough to get through, you know, Bad television. 10 hours or 13 hours of TV, you know, to get to the good. Like, how long are you going to sit around and wait for something to get good? Even even if you know it is. Like, even if you have if somehow you trust a critic blindly never and you're just like, me. yeah, never trust me. I'm almost obviously all over the place. But if you do find somebody that you trust, I mean... Good Lord, that's that's tough. Like, it's our job to do it, so we're going to keep at it. But, you know, for viewers out there, just getting jerked around from one side to the next, it's like, wait, I thought Bloodline wasn't, it wasn't great. Now it's, oh, now it is good. I don't know what to do. Yeah. I mean, the best, the best thing about this conversation is talking about TV that gets better as it goes is one of my favorite things. I love when television keeps improving, and that's why, like, I don't think it's a sh- I don't think it's a crime to say that a season season two of a show is better is I don't think it's saying that season one is bad if you're saying season two is better and I've, that's a point I really want to emphasize like as as we t- discussed earlier but I love that television gets can get better I love that it evolves I love that it, gro- it grows like I use the word evolve so much when I talk about television because it's one of the best things about it. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of the unique qualities of the medium that it's even possible for that to happen. So, yeah. with that being said, Ben, what was the best thing you watched last week? Uh, it's literally the last thing I watched, and I'm repeating what I said last week, and I don't even care. It's Veep. <laughs> this again, this week's episode of Veep, top tier. It's better than last week's, and oh. last week's was top tier. I can't give a bigger grade that I'm giving. Like it's 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 so good. Yep. It is. It really is. Jonah Ryan for Congress.com. Absolutely. Yeah. The, I mean, go head to IndieWire and just we've got the we've got two clips up. There's a link to Jonah Ryan for Congress.com. I mean, we've got all that stuff there. We'll have a review up Sunday night. But well, by the time you're reading this, there'll be a review up. So or hearing this, I should say. Um, but Liz, what about you? What's the best thing you watched last week? Well, it's also something I mentioned last week. Uh, I mentioned last week that I was looking forward to finishing the uh, History Channel miniseries Roots. I have finished The Roots. Roots is great. Like, it is... It got me. Like, you know, I I finished up watching it this morning in the office. Like, Ben's sitting, like, five feet away from me uh, doing his own thing. And I'm, like, like wiping away tears. Like, in what is the least sexy viewing environment possible. Uh, But it was... I mean, it's... There are things I might question and choices that get made and, you know, storylines I wish had been longer or shorter, but it's an epic, sprawling, but also really beautifully intimate character-focused story. And I say this, I'm saying all this as someone who never saw the original uh, because uh, I did not get to it for some reason. And also I wasn't alive in 1978. Um, And... Both so, good reasons. Both, I mean, they're all K reasons. One of them is not a good excuse. Like, it's Roots. It's a classic. And Ben Vereen and LeVar Burton, I love them. So I should watch it at some point. But I was really impressed by this by this new version. It's beautifully made. I mean, history, it should, should be beautifully made. History Channel spent a ton of money on it. Um, but it's, I think, going to be really worth checking out. The first part premieres tonight on History and probably across, like, a bunch of other networks. It's a big A&E Networks uh, production, so it's spilling all over the place onto Lifetime and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, I'm really excited. I, I think you should be really excited for it. 
And two quick points. First, tonight means Monday. In yes. case I've confused you with my many strange time references throughout this podcast. But Ben Travers uh, has come unstuck in time. Oh, Literary reference. Oh my God. Also, to continue with the theme of time, um, it, we came very close to having a strange occurrence in the office where people would be walking by and they would have seen Liz weeping and me laughing hysterically. <laughs> Uh, because I was watching Veep while she was watching Roots, but we just we just missed it, like just, just by like twenty minutes or so. Yeah, just another day at the IndieWire offices. True, true enough. Ben, what's the next thing you're looking forward to? Uh, I'm looking forward to the same thing that you're not looking forward to, Liz, and that's the Maya and Marty variety show special on NBC. I'm not like I'm not like picketing it. I'm not like at NBC Studios like with a bomb threat or anything. Well, I, no, I mean, it's it's very rare, in fact, that you would ever express any kind of ill will towards any show. You are very open about watching just about anything, which is great. Like, I might have watched the Maya Marty thing. Yeah, exactly. See, I, I know you're curious enough to at least check it out so that your, you know, your your hunches, your your preconceived presumptions. One so half speak. of that equation is totally pleasant to me. I mean, two halves of that equation are absolutely stellar performers, and that's why I'm very excited to see it. Plus, they announced just yesterday great guest stars that Liz also balked at. <laughs> She's like, oh, I'm sorry, Tom Hanks, Miley Cyrus. I don't care. Who, gets, who would I care about he, that? I yeah, he all, like, a very like relaxed, dismissive that's verbiage. My, that's just like, like, oh, that's yeah, high sure. praise. It is not. It is. I've seen your high praise <laughs> via text and in person. That was not it. No, I, I reserve I reserve he I for very specific instances, such as I just got off the phone with David Tennant. I actually that was literally what I said to Steve when I walked out of the conference room. I was like he I. Yeah, and your and your facial expression, your the way you carry yourself is entirely different than what happened yesterday. So I just I'm just putting it out there. I think this is going to be spectacular. Can't wait to see it. Liz has reservations, but she will definitely watch. I like Tom Hanks a lot. Tom Good. Hanks, you're great. Damn I'll buy right. you a typewriter someday. Oh, well, that's a overcommitment, perhaps. But I mean, that's how you get him. That's you. how you get him on a podcast. You get him a typewriter? Yeah, apparently he collects antique typewriters. That's how. The, so that when uh, the Nerdist wanted him on their podcast, they bought a typewriter, wrote him a letter on the typewriter, and then sent it to his offices. I knew that he liked typewriters. I've seen a lot of his Twitter photographs of him writing in various famous locations. Um, but I wonder if we can get that into the budget. Do you think we can get a, a fancy typewriter expen- into the budget? Well, not a fancy typewriter. I mean, we got to get something good enough to get him over here. Maybe we can get him a fax machine. It's like the typewriter of the future. I feel like that's different. Is it? <laughs> it, could, it could be. <laughs> All right, Liz, what are you looking forward to, though? Oh, man. So... As, I, as we mentioned, we're recording this a Friday before Memorial Day. And, oh, gosh, I may actually have some time to watch television this weekend. And, I mean, when I say watch television, I mean I may have some time to watch television that, well, actually, no, this is work television. But it doesn't feel like work television, technically, because this is something I'm just really excited about. I have screeners for Orange is the New Black Season 4. Nice. And I have, like, I have done so good at not watching them yet. And that's going to change. And I'm very excited because that show continues to be a favorite. Actually, I should. what I should do this weekend is I should watch season three. And then I can watch start watching season four next week. Because I want to rewatch season three. So I'm really there. I'm really ready. It's a I'm big really, commitment. It's a big commitment. Like, you know, it's an emotional show. Talk it, about watching, you know, 20 hours of television. I mean, for different purposes, obviously. But you're still, you're committing a lot of time. I mean... 
That's the one thing I have, Ben. True enough. That and love. <laughs> so much love, <laughs> namely for Tom Hanks and Martin Short. One of those people. Yeah. All right. Um, and you can find my love for television and Ben's love for television and other people's vague, vague appreciation of television uh, at IndieWire.com, where you can also find reviews, interviews, features, all the stuff you like, some of the stuff you don't like. But, you know, look, David Ehrlich had to tell you about that Adam Sandler movie. Do not watch the Adam Sandler movie. You guys just don't do it. David Ehrlich said not to. You're better off. He watches them so you don't have to, in the words of our great Kate Erblund. Um Or was that Eric? I can't remember which said it now. I mean, they probably one they of them They both did. believe it, so let's go with it. And yeah. speaking of Eric Cohn, make sure you listen to him and our great Ann Thompson on the Screen Talk podcast. They say nothing but things that you need to hear. They do watch some things that you don't need to watch, but they'll tell you, and that's valuable information as well. I mean, that's going to save you two hours that you can then apply to your long queue of, of TV that you need to watch. Um, so make sure you're listening to the Screen Talk every week. One of my favorite things, in fact, about Anne and Eric are they will not bullshit you about whether or not something's good or bad. If Anne does not like something and she thinks it is bad, she will tell you very very much to your face. They're both they're both terrible liars. There's no way they could they could lie to you about whether or not something was good or bad that uh, you're going to be able to tell. At least about television. Right. Or, or film, film, rather. Yes. They, that's the thing they watch. I don't really pay much attention to it. <laughs> good thing we told everybody to listen because it's so important. Oh, God. It's been, a long, it's been a long week. Did I mention that? <laughs> Only three times. Okay. You didn't have to review both shows. Didn't I? Ugh. Anyways, you can find Ben on Twitter at Ben T. Travers. You can find Liz on Twitter at Lizlet, and that's with an I and an E. Correct. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, you guys, keep watching television.